Hello and welcome to Camel Screen Guild Players from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. How Green Was My Valley. Starring the original cast. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. And now here is your host, the director of the star's own theater, Roger Pryor. Good evening, everyone. The Gulf Oil Companies and your neighborhood good Gulf dealer welcome you to the Gulf Screen Guild Theater, the star's own theater. Because the money they would ordinarily receive for appearing here... Gulf gives instead to the Motion Picture Relief Fund for its needs and for the home now well under construction. You know, just three weeks and two days ago, the prized Academy Award was given to Daryl F. Zanuck's production, How Green Was My Valley. And tonight, in tribute, your Gulf Theater brings you the first radio presentation of this beautiful picture. Our stars, the original cast, Walter Pidgeon, Maureen O'Hara, Irving Pitchell, Sarah Allgood, Roddy McDowell, Reese Williams... And Donald Crisp, who won the Academy Award for his portrayal of Mr. Morgan. Before our curtain rises on Charles Taswell's superb radio adaptation of How Green Was My Valley, I'd like to mention that when historians record the events of today, one of the most stirring chapters will be the story of how America's great industrial plants turned from peace to the production of weapons for the defense of democracy. And so it's only fitting that tonight we pay tribute to a group of men and women who have helped make this great work possible. They are the 2,496 employees of the Gulf Companies who, at this time, are receiving awards for long service. Ordinarily, these men and women would be honored in meetings of their fellows throughout the land. But today is not the time to spare. So their recognition is taking place in the oil fields, in refineries, offices, and laboratories, wherever their daily work takes them. In all... There are now more than 12,000 Gulf men and women who have received these awards. But more than a third of Gulf's employees have from 10 to 40 years of service to their credit. The veteran employees and all Gulf employees today are using the experience and knowledge gained during the years for the production, manufacture, and speedy distribution of ever-finer petroleum products. Products that now help keep our planes flying, our tanks rolling, and our ships sailing. And we feel that in paying honor to our own people, we're at the same time honoring all of the people of America who are applying their many skills to our present great task. And so we say to the men and women of Gulf everywhere, congratulations. Keep up the good work. And now, How Green Was My Valley, starring the original cast... Oscar Bradley's lovely score sets the mood for this beautiful story of a man's childhood in Wales. There is no fence nor hedge around time that is gone. You can go back and have what you like of it, if you can remember and so I can close my eyes on my valley as it is today and see it as it was when I was a boy. Green it was then. In all Wales, there was none so beautiful. Everything I ever learned as a small boy came from my father, Willem Morgan, and I never found anything he ever told me to be wrong or worthless. 
is not only green, but a brave valley. You, my son, a true man of Wales has never bowed his head or bent his knee to any conqueror. Yes, Dada. And my mother seemed to be always on the run, always the last to start a dinner and the first of all our family to finish. If my father was the head of our house, my mother was its heart. Fight again. And when you come home, not a word shall you have for me. Not even a look. Now then, drink this glass of buttermilk to keep up your strength. Yes, Mama. Yes, and as clear as the memory of Mother's voice is the picture of all of us sitting around the table. We were a big family, for I had five older brothers. They, like my father, were coal miners, and on Saturdays they would wash off the grime of the mines in great tubs of water brought by my mother and my sister Anne Harrod. Wash your backs well, boys, or your mother won't let you in the house. <laughs> All that was in the early days of the colliery in my valley, when money was easily earned, when the black slag, the waste of the coal pits, made only a small blot on the green of my valley. But as the slag pile grew, so grew the avarice of the owners. Then, one day, the men gathered at the mine entrance to read a notice just posted, and their faces were sullen and their voices bitter. And that night at the table, my five brothers were silent and unsmiling, but my father went on eating quietly, feigning not to notice them. Suddenly, my brother Davy jumped to his feet and said, his voice shaking with anger, Do those fellows think we let them cut wages and not raise a hand to stop them? Davy's right, Father. The men are ready to strike if you say the word. Enough, Yanto. You'll not be a party to nonsense. Enough now. It is not enough, sir. Oh, and I had no thought I would ever hear my own sons talking socialist nonsense. I'm sorry, sir, but... Quiet, will you? Hold your tongue at table until you have permission to speak. I will speak against injustice anywhere. With permission or without it, Father. Not in this house. In this house and outside. Leave the table, Owen. I will leave the house. I'm with you, Owen. I too. And I. And I. Will. All of you, then. You have one more chance. Sit down, finish your dinner. I will say no more. Very well, then. Get your clothes and go. Dada? Dada? Yes. Yes, you, my son. I am fully aware and happy that you are still with me. Yes, I was still with him. And I seldom left his side during the bitter weeks that followed the groan and creak of the mine machinery died away into silence and was replaced by the groan and creak of men's voices. Twenty-two long weeks the strike lasted, and as it moved into winter, the mood of the men grew uglier. Any man who was not their friend became their enemy, and as my father had spoken against the strike, they came to blame him for what they themselves had brought about. At last, their desperation conquered reason, and a stone crashed through the window to fall at my mother's feet. A rock through our window, is it? Or it is time someone talks sense to those men. Tell me, Hugh, 
Is that a meeting tonight? Yes, Mother. Up in the hills. I heard them talking about it. We'll go, you and I. But say not a word to your father. Tonight, I do the talking. I remember how cold it was. How dark. As we came to the summit of the hill, the gale hit us with full force, blinding our eyes with the streaming downpour. The meeting was breaking up and the men were moving away. My mother called to them over the rising tumult of the storm. Wait, you men! Wait till you have heard me! Who is it? Who are you? I am Beth Morgan. I have come up here to tell you what I think of you all, because you are talking against my husband. You are a lot of cowards to go against him. He has done nothing against you, and he never would, and you know it well. There is one thing more I will say, and it is this. If harm comes to my Gwillem, I will find out the men, and I will kill them with my hands. And this I swear by God Almighty. As Mother and I made our way back down the mountain, the wind shrieked through the trees over our heads, and the rain came down in torrents. As we crossed a small bridge, Mother grasped the rail for support, but the rotten wood broke under her weight. She pitched forward into the icy water, and I threw myself in after her to save her. So strong was the cold that for minutes I couldn't breathe. How long it was, I cannot tell before I saw a light and heard the voices of the men. An eternity of time, an eternity of pain, an eternity of cold before merciful oblivion. I awoke in my bed by the window, and the window was open, and it was spring. Mr. Griffith, the minister, and, and then Harrod, my sister, were by my bed and whispering together. What did the doctor say when he left? He gave us small hope, Mr. Griffith. He said Hugh's legs were frozen to the bone a year, two years, quiet in bed. But he wouldn't promise that he would ever walk again. And your mother? Oh, she is doing very well. Shh. I think he's waking. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Just hello? Is that all? Oh. I think I know what's the matter. You weren't asleep, huh? You heard what your sister said about the doctor? Is that it? Yes. And you believed it? Yes. You want to walk again, don't you, Hugh? Then you must have faith. And if you have, you will walk, no matter what all the doctors say. Do you believe me, Hugh? Yes. Yes, sir. Good. Then, when the first daffodil appears up there on the mountain, you and I will go up to see it, won't we, huh? Indeed we will, sir. <laughs> Indeed we will. Well, I must be going now. Bye-bye, Hugh. Goodbye, sir. Goodbye, Aunt Harrod. Oh, Mr. Griffith. Yes. Will you be coming to supper soon? Uh, later, when you are finished with doctors and such. I will hurry them away then. There is good you are. And you are very beautiful, Aunt Harrod. I? I'm sorry. I have no right to speak to you so. If the right is mine to give, you have it. <laughs> Thank you.
I lay in bed and read books that Mr. Griffith brought me. All the noble books that have lived in my mind ever since. And young as I was, I also read the hearts of my sister Anne Harrod and Mr. Griffith and learned that they were in love. Then, one day, Mr. Griffith came home. I put on the clothes that had been waiting for so many months, and on his shoulders I rode up the mountain. It was a bright, windy morning, and nodding in the sunlight were patches of daffodils. Mr. Griffith put me down gently on my poor legs, walked a few steps away, then turned and said, Now, Hugh, my lad, walk over to me. But, but I can't. Where's your faith, boy? Come, walk. But... I'm waiting, Hugh. Are you coming? Yes. Yes, sir. That's the boy. Easy now. Careful does it. Look, Mr. Griffith, look, he's walking I am. Of course you are. Didn't I say you would if you had faith? I did it. Oh, I did it. <laughs> There's a good old man you are. You know, Hugh, you have been lucky. Lucky to suffer and lucky to spend those weary months in your bed. Or so God has given you the chance to make spirit within yourself. Just never forget that when you pray. Think well what you are saying and make your thoughts into things that are solid. In that manner, your prayer will have strength and that strength shall become a part of you, mind, body, and spirit. You've got your legs, Hugh, and the first duty of those new legs shall be to carry you to chapel next Sunday to give thanks for them. And so, because I had faith, I walked again. And on the mountainside, I picked the first daffodils of springtime and took them home to my mother. In memory, I can still see them standing in the doorway. My father and my brothers, their quarrel forgotten. And my mother, her hair now as white as the winter snows from that terrible night, all watching me as I walked beside Mr. Griffith, my face as bright and shining as my daffodils. And as the spring made my valley green again, that dreadful winter was forgotten, and the strike at the mine was settled. Wheels that had grown rusty turned again, and miners laughed and called to each other as they went up the hill to the shaft. <laughs> but not all the men, for there were too many now for the jobs open, and they learned that never again would there be work for them in their own valley. So it was with two of my brothers. So they went off to America. Baby. They've made up their minds, Beth, my girl. And maybe it is for the best. Who knows now? It's so far away, Gwillem. Still, there's no work in Wales. In Cardiff, the men are standing in line to have bread from the government. And that is not for a Morgan. This is only the beginning. Owen and Ianta now. Then all of them will go. One after the other. All of them. I will never leave you, Mama. Yes, you. But if, should, if you should ever leave me... I'll be sorry I ever had babies. Why did you have them? Why? Goodness gracious, boy. <laughs> Why, indeed. <laughs> to keep my hands in water and my face to the fire, perhaps. <laughs> now go along with you and study your lessons for the school examination. That school examination, how I worked with Mr. Griffith's help to pass it. He came over to our cottage every evening, and sitting by the fire and watching him was my sister Anne Harrod hoping for his smile, or look, or slightest gesture. But Mr. Griffith feigned not to notice her, for her hand had been bespoken by Yeston Evans, 
the mine owner's son. One night after lessons, Mr. Griffith went home to find her waiting at his house. I'm horrid. You shouldn't be here. I couldn't spend another night without knowing. What has happened? Is something wrong? Wrong? Oh, you know what I mean. Why have you changed towards me? Have I done anything? No. The blame is mine. Tis good that you are going to marry Yeston Evans. You could do no better. Yeston Evans? I don't want him. I want you. Unhurried. When I became a minister, I knew what it meant. It meant making it my whole life. That I was perfectly willing to do. But to share it with another. Do you think that I will have you going threadbare all your life, depending on the charity of others for your good meals, our children growing up in cast-off clothing? No. I think I would start to kill if I saw the white come into your hair 20 years before its time. Why? Why would you start to kill? Are you a man or a saint? I'm no saint. But I have a duty towards you. Let me do it. Did I come here to hear sermons about your duty? Unhurried. Unhurried! And so Anharad married Yeston Evans and went away. And with her went some of the brightness of my valley. And Mr. Griffith seemed silent and strange. I remember thinking about them as I walked to school that first morning. I had my new pencil box and my books, but very little courage. What a frightened, miserable picture I must have been as I stood before the desk of Mr. Jonas, the master. I can still see his ugly face and still hear his oily, sneering voice as he spoke to me over the noises of the schoolroom. Quiet. Quiet. So, you are the new boy, are you? And what a dirty little sweep it is. What's your name, boy? You. Morgan. You will address me as sir. I'll put a stick across your back. I was very unhappy at the school, for in the classroom I was the object of Mr. Jonas' disdain and tyranny, and in the schoolyard I was the victim of the class bully. But after I'd returned home with a series of black eyes and bloody noses, my father secured the services of Di Bando, a prizefighter, and Di carefully taught me how to defend myself. Then there came the day when those lessons were put to use. It was in the schoolyard, and I had bested my worst tormentor. Suddenly, Mr. Jonas appeared, cane in hand, and he seized my jacket. Softly now. Dear me, dear me, so our coal mining friend has been fighting with his fetters. I think I know the treatment for that. Master Mervyn. Will you be so good as to make a back? Thank you. Now, my dirty little sweep, please to bend across Mervyn's back. Now, I will teach you manners like this. And this, and this, and this, 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 this. I fainted long before Mr. Jonas finished the beating, and I crept home that night, my back cut and bleeding. I was in bed for some days. But although my father wished to call on Mr. Jonas, I refused to let him. Then, one day after I returned to school, the class was interrupted by the sudden appearance of Dibando, the prize fighter, dressed in his Sunday best, bowler hat and all. Good morning. Mr. Jonas, is it? Yes. I am Mr. Jonas. What is it you want, sir? Knowledge, Mr. Jonas. Now, uh, how would you go about measuring a stick? By its length, of course. Then how would you take the measure of a man who would use a stick on a boy, one-third his size? Now, look here, I have no time... Uh, Mr. Jonas, boxing is my subject, and happy I am to pass my knowledge on to you. Are you ready? What do you mean? Good. 
Then on with the lesson. Get out of here. Now, no man can call himself a good boxer unless he has a good straight left, like this. Ah, help! Help! Somebody but always him. remember to follow up with the right. Please! Oh, but no, don't Tony ever lower your arm like that, or you will leave yourself open for a right hook. Ah. Come, come! Man, up with you! Let go of me. Oh, you can't win a fight lying on the floor. Let go, I say. Now, when you hit, put your shoulder into it, like this. Ah. And this. Ah. And this. But don't ever use this because it's against the rules and breaks a man's nose. And remembering still, I could tell you of the years that followed, of how I graduated, and then instead of going on to prepare myself for some profession, I chose to work with my father in the colliery. Yes, and go on to tell of my sister Anne Harrod, who left her husband and came back to the valley, pale, unhappy, and still loving Mr. Griffith. But those memories have almost been lost in one that still can be heard in my ears today. The hoarse screaming of the mine whistle, that dread warning of disaster that called people from their houses and sent them running up the hill. There had been an accident on the lower level, and my father was among those missing. This is the tunnel where he was working. You better give him your hand. He's alive. He must be alive, Mr. Griffith. Listen now. There. Did you hear something? Yes, that way it was. Past this slide of rock. Quick, hurry, die. Give me room to swing the pick. Here, you. Take this lantern and climb through. Yes. Dada! Yes. You. Dada! We're here, Dada! There is a good old man you are now. You? You, my son? I knew that you would find me. I knew, my boy. There it was, my father died. Died, did I say? Men like my father cannot die. They are with us still, real in memory as they were real in flesh, loving and beloved forever. Sixty bygone years of memory. And can I believe my friends all gone when their voices are still a glory in my ears? Is my mother gone? She who knew the meaning of my family and taught us all to know it with her. And my brothers, with their courage and their strength. And my sister and Harrod, of the quiet grace and breathless beauty. Are they not a living truth forever in my mind? And Mr. Griffith, that one of rock and flame, who taught the meaning of friendship. Did my father die down in the mine? Is he not still with me? in his quick understanding of my troubles, 
in the wisdom of the advice which I never found to be wrong or worthless. It is not only green, but a brave valley. You, my son, a true man of Wales has never bowed his head or bent his knee to any conqueror. Mind you now. Is my father dead? For if he is, then I am dead. And we are dead. And all of sense of mockery. Yes, how green was my valley then. And the valley of them that have gone. So the curtain falls on How Green Was My Valley. Our thanks to Walter Pidgeon, Maureen O'Hara, Donald Crisp, Sarah Allgood, Roddy McDowell, Irving Pitchell, and Reese Williams for a movingly beautiful performance. And to Oscar Bradley for his great score. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in just about a minute, you're going to hear a message from Daryl F. Zanuck, producer of How Green Was My Valley. Meanwhile, suppose we listen to a young man who has this to say. Friends, here's a little car-saver tip that can do a lot to help ensure you dependable transportation for a long time. Do you know that driving your car, even for a short distance, without the full protection of proper lubrication, can easily cause more damage and wear than a long, hard trip with that protection? That's why it's a good idea to drive into your good Gulf dealers right away and let him Gulflex your car. The trained Gulflex man will replace the worn lubricants in your chassis and body-wearing points with new lubricants. Not ordinary ones either, but six scientific lubricants especially developed by Gulf. These lubricants have outperformed competitive greases in both laboratory and road tests. So you can be sure your car is getting the car saver protection it needs. And the Gulflex man has master charts that indicate exactly which type of lubricant to use in each of the many points that must be protected. Gulflexing costs no more than an ordinary grease job. It's one of the most important ways in which your golf man can help you to take care of your car for your country. And now it's a privilege to welcome to our stage Colonel Jason C. Joy of the 20th Century Fox Studios. Thank you, Mr. Pryor. Mr. Darrell Zanuck, who produced How Green Was My Valley, has been detained in Washington, D.C., but he asked me to express the appreciation of the 20th Century Fox Company for this fine broadcast. I'd like to repeat the statement he made at the Academy Awards dinner, that no one man produces a picture such as How Green Was My Valley. It is the result, rather, of the collaboration of every member of the 20th Century Fox studio. On Mr. Zanuck's behalf, therefore, I wish to express the obligation of the company to John Ford for his masterful direction of the picture, to Richard Llewellyn, and to Philip Dunn for the inspiring book and the brilliant screenplay, and to, the and to all of the members of the cast. The fact that How Green Was My Valley won five separate Academy Awards testifies to the perfect cooperation and enthusiasm of everyone who worked on the picture, from prop man to star. We are all deeply honored, and thank you. Thank you, Colonel Joy. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before we go, I want to tell you that... Rush! 
Roger, Roger, what happened? Oh, nothing, bud. That's just Jack Benny rehearsing. Jack Benny? You mean Jack's going to be on our show? He is, if he can tear himself away from all the benefit appearances he's been giving night and day. So, ladies and gentlemen, treat yourselves to one of the funniest radio programs you've ever heard. Tune in next week on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Until next Sunday, then, this is Roger Pryor speaking for your neighborhood good golf dealer and saying good night, everyone. Americans, listen. Admiral Yamamoto, commander of the Japanese Navy, has boasted, I shall not be content merely to capture Guam and the Philippines and occupy Hawaii and San Francisco. I shall also look forward to dictating peace to the United States in the White House. And 72 million Japanese back up his boast. Americans, give them your answer. Buy more defense bonds and stamps. Every dime, every dollar increases the fighting strength of your country, brings nearer the defeat of the enemy. So buy defense bonds and stamps and do your part to win the war. Walter Pidgeon is the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer star and will soon appear in their production of Mrs. Miniver, as will Reese Williams, Donald Crisp in Gay Sisters, a Warner Brothers picture, Sarah Allgood in This Above All, Maureen O'Hara in Ten Gentlemen from West Point, and Roddy McDowell in The Pied Piper, 20th Century Fox Productions. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.